Hey everyone, and welcome to Christ Fellowship Online. My name is Jeannie Rodriguez, and I'm so glad that you're able to join us. If this is your first time, I want to invite you to pause the broadcast and fill out a connection card at cfmemi.org connect. This will help us connect with you and know how we can best serve you during the season. And now, a special message by Pastor Mark Croston. Do not commit adultery. Short, sweet, and to the point. You may be seated. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the gift of life and for this beautiful day that you've given to us. Thank you for the many blessings that are ours. Thank you for the awesome name of Jesus and the power in that name. God, we pray in these moments that you would open up your word for our hearing. Speak to us, O oh God, we pray at the point of our greatest need. Make us better for having come here today. And allow these moments to give your name which is worthy, glory, and honor, and praise. And we thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, and all who know him said amen. amen. So, we've been talking about uh, 10 ways to wreck your life. And today is way number seven. And the answer is no adultery. No adultery. So uh, there's a couple that I know that got married in their early 20s. And by now they have been married more than 25 years. They, they both grew up in church. They both attend attended church growing up and throughout the years regularly, but now at this marriage of over 25 years, I can say the wife has had at least four different affairs. Let me say three quick things about that. One, their story is not unique. Touch your neighbor and say it's not unique. Somewhere in excess of 25% of men and women commit adultery. Second, their adultery is not news. Touch your neighbor and say, it's not new. Uh, so if it were new, it is not the product of a new morality or a sexual revolution. If it were not uh, occurring in the ancient times of this biblical text, then Exodus 20:14 would never have made it there. It's not, not new. And this prohibition on adultery listed in Exodus 20:14 is also not new. Uh, social scientists report all known cultures have some limitations set on extramarital sexual relations and some means of enforcing such designated taboos. The whole idea is that the sanctity of marriage is of utmost importance. The sanctity of marriage is fundamental and essential to the growth and prosperity of any society. Anytime a society has moved away from the idea of the sanctity of marriage, their society has gone in decline. So because of this important issue, I'm going to pick up the lives of three people, three saints in the biblical text who go through struggles just like this one so that we can all glean from the uh, activities of their lives. The first is a guy named Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph was the uh, 
Next, the youngest son of a guy named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And of these 12 sons, uh, the other sons were jealous of Jacob. They didn't like him. And, and long story short, they ended selling him into slavery. And he went down to Egypt as a slave. He ended up working in the house of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was a rich, powerful man. And he and Joseph worked there. And, and Joseph did such a good job in Potiphar's house. Potiphar made him in charge of everything. And so while Joseph is working there, having success in his slavery, uh, Potiphar's wife, Sister Potiphar, started taking notice of old Joseph. And she decided that she wanted to have sex with Joseph. I'm going to tell you, the Bible is better than any of these uh, TV shows you watch on television. It's got all kinds of stuff in there. So, so what Joseph shows us is that Joseph shows us how to avoid an affair. This is the best way. How to avoid an affair. Number one, you've got to make up your mind in advance. And so it says in verse number seven, it says, and after some time, his master's wife looked longingly, you get the idea, at Joseph, and she said, bold, brazen, sleep with me. But it says in verse number eight, but he refused. And just let me say that you can't wait until you get in the middle of some hot and heavy situation to decide what you're going to do. You can't wait till you get there and say, oh, man, what should I do now? You know, you, you might try to call up Pastor Rick and say, Pastor Rick, what am I going to do? Hey, but he might not answer the phone. You know, your mind might be so clouded by the heat of the situation, even the Holy Ghost can't get a word in. And so you need to decide now, while you're in the coolness of the moment and you have your right mind, you need to decide what you're going to do before you get there. Your convictions, your ethics, your moral values, your Christian commitment must be made before you get into the circumstance. So touch your neighbor and tell them, decide now. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number four says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sinner. Take some time this week and read Proverbs five. In Proverbs five, there are the musings of an older man that is given to his young son, trying to give him some wisdom, particularly about this issue of adultery. When we get down to verse number 15, the old man tells his son, drink from your own cistern. Now, I'm going to just tell you that there are a lot of songs out there that tell us that adultery is fine and, and it's the best sex you'll ever have and all that kind of stuff. And, but I, I'm encouraged that every now and then there are some popular artists who actually write some songs that encourage us not to go down that path. I'm excited about that. None are better than the classic hit by Mint Condition, What Kind of Man Would I Be? What Kind of Man Would I Be 
if I lived unfaithfully? And what kind of girl would you be if you did the same? I don't want to see her cry. We don't need a reason to lie. But if we lay down tonight, it won't justify or make it right. The truth is you got to decide right now. The second thing that Joseph shows us is that you've got to consider the consequences. And so when we get down in the end of chapter 9, in chapter 9 it says, uh, Joseph's thinking about his job right now. He says, no one in the house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you uh, because you are his wife. So he says about this, how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? And so Joseph recognizes that this is not just between me and Sister Potiphar, but this is really about me and my relationship with God. And, and he says that there are going to be ramifications, consequences to my actions. And so think about it. What could you lose if you were to just run out and have an affair today? I know it might not be on your calendar, but usually they aren't. But what could you lose if you ran out and had one? You could lose your spouse and your relationship with your children. You could lose your finances. You know, when, when you have a divorce, you usually end up poorer than you were before you had one. There's an old classic song that says, it's cheaper to keep her. <laughs> your health, your community standing, your self-respect, your Christian testimony, all are on the line as consequences come to our life as a result of an affair. The third thing that uh, Joseph teaches us is that we should never toy with temptation. Never toy with temptation. Now, Joseph was a great man. It says, verse number 10, that she didn't just come at him one time, but it says, Day after day. Huh? Day every day. Joseph going in the office. Every day she's hitting on Joseph. Every day she's flaunting herself. Making a pass at him. And just blatantly, come on and sleep with me. Come on, Joseph. Sleep with me every day. You know, one time, maybe you can, give, you can be strong enough to handle one time. But if somebody comes at you every day. You might start thinking you're something. <laughs> so the text says that one day on one occasion, Mr. Potiphar was away on a business trip. And Sister Potiphar went out to uh, Victoria's Secret, got herself one of them sexy looking outfits, and she threw that thing on and came in. She said, I'm going to work him today. And so she came in, Joseph come in, got his briefcase, took out his laptop, checking his email, and uh, she shows up in this little slinky outfit and says to her usual line, she, this time she became physical, says she grabbed him and says, sleep with me. And Joseph, you know, he says, leaving his garment in her hands. That's how, that's how tight she had hold of him. <laughs> leaving his clothes in her hand. She was really hot for him. 
But Joseph said, I would rather run out of here naked than to defile myself with you. Now, here's what Joseph tells me. He reminds me that we are all vulnerable. I got like one little hmm over here. Thank you. Thank you. We are all vulnerable. Thank you. The only ones in this group that are not vulnerable are the ones who are sick or dead. And the fact that you're here today says that you are not on that list. So touch your neighbor and just tell them you are vulnerable. See, here's where people get messed up. They don't own your weaknesses. Hmm? Even Superman knew that he had a problem with kryptonite. And so the truth is that all of us have our weaknesses, and if you're not in touch with your weakness, you will never defend against it, and you are the most vulnerable in the crowd. James says it like this, James 1.13, no one undergoing a trial should say I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So it's not true. You know, Flipbos, you say the devil made me do it. Well, the devil didn't make you do it. Verse 14, each person is tempted, listen to this, when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. What this says to me is that temptation is not out there. The temptation had nothing to do with what she was wearing or what he was driving or what they said. It's not out there. The temptation is in here. Let me see if I can illustrate this. In my life, I've never used illegal drugs. I've never shot nothing, snorted nothing, smoke nothing, and that's not because I'm all that holy. It's because it doesn't make sense to me and it's not in here. So I'm not, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal, I'm just telling you, it ain't in here. As I think about it, you know, I think about drugs and there's a guy who willing to break the law in order to make money. His only desire is to make a profit and he's willing to sell you something off the street in a dark back alley that has not been USDA certified and you gonna put that in your body? It just doesn't make no sense to me. So it's not that I'm trying to be holy, I'm just saying it just sounds kind of stupid to put something like that in your body. Because that's not in me. Now I have some friends and that is in them unfortunately. Now, that's not saying I don't have stuff in me. I got plenty of stuff in me, just like you got stuff in you. Hmm? I, and I know what my stuff is. So if you were to take a curvaceous, succulent breast of chicken. <laughs> I said chicken. And put that in front of me. Now that is a temptation, you know. I struggle every time I go by KFC. Oh, no. You know. 
But you have to know what your particular weaknesses are. And what this text tells me is that God gives us everything we need in order to overcome adultery. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has taken you except what is common. That's the first thing, that whatever we're going through is common. Everybody goes through it. You are not by yourself. Common to man, but God is faithful. He would not allow you to be tempted above what you can bear. Number two, it says that God protects us and will only allow to come in the sphere of our lives those temptations that we already have the power to overcome. And he says, just in case we are tempted beyond that, he says he will provide a way out so that we can bear up under it. So he says, if you can't do anything else, put on your Nikes and run out of there. And that's what Joseph did in this particular text. She had worn him down until he didn't know what to do. And finally, Joseph just runs out of the room. First Corinthians chapter 6, 18, Paul says the same thing. He says, flee sexual immorality. Don't fight with something. Don't fight a fight. You can't win. Touch your neighbor and tell him, don't fight a fight. You can't win. So Joseph shows us how to avoid an affair. Hosea gives us the antidote for the agony. And it is agony. If you've ever been on the receiving side of somebody cheating on you, you know it's agony. And if you've been on the perpetrating side, maybe you don't realize it, but, but you are given the one who had committed themselves to you utter agony. Well, the book of Hosea, in the midst of this, is all about the love, the grace, and the mercy of Almighty God. See, Hosea's book reminds us that the antidote, the only antidote for the agony one goes through when one has been cheated on in their lives is forgiveness and love. That's the only thing that'll help you. It says, so love your mate like God loves you. And so in the book of Hosea chapter one, God calls on Hosea to marry a girl named Gomer. And in chapter one, he goes ahead out of obedience to God. She, she was, uh, you know, kind of a loose woman to start out with. He marries her. And, and in chapter one, she ends up having two babies that aren't his. And then by the end of chapter one, she has left him altogether. And so by the end of chapter one, Gomer's gone, and poor Hosea's left to raise two kids that are by another man. You couldn't make this stuff up. And then all kinds of stuff is going on with Gomer in chapter 2. And by the time we pick up chapter 3, the Lord says... The Lord said to me, go again and show love to the woman who is loved by another man. And technically it should have been by every man, but he said just another man. 
and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes. Now, I don't know what it is about their raisin cakes, but they really had to be special. <laughs> so the only way to understand and appreciate God's love for us is, it, is to be able to uh, embrace it so that we can demonstrate it to others. So think about it for a second. If you had to think about God's love for you, what words would you use in order to describe God's love for you? Your word list would have to include things like patient, that God is forgiving. He is long-suffering, gracious, passionate, merciful, redeeming, understanding, steadfast, unselfish, sacrificial, and surely on that list would have to be the idea that God was faithful. See, divorce could have been an option for Hosea. A lot of people take this too quick, too easy. It could have been an option for Hosea given the severity of the circumstances that Hosea was faced with. But Hosea understood that his marriage vow before God was not as long as we both shall love, but it was as long as we both shall live. So I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, if God gave us these feelings, why aren't we supposed to act on them? Hmm? Wouldn't it be nice if when you got married, all of a sudden God changed you so that now you only feel attraction to the one you made a vow to? Hmm? Other people can walk by, do things, you don't even notice them because you only got, yeah, I only got eyes for you. You know, that would be great, but it don't work that way. Hmm? God didn't make us into little robots. He doesn't transform us into some contractual relationship. God wants a real, vital, loving, passionate relationship. And so, just in case you're not married, once you get married, everything works the same way. Your eyes still see what your eyes see. Your heart still feels what your heart feels. You get the idea. So you don't change in, in that regard. So let me, let me see if I can explain it this way. In the book of Genesis, when God made the creation, and he put Adam and Eve in the middle of the garden. There was nothing Adam and Eve could sin with because there wasn't nothing around. And so God put a tree in the middle of the garden. Why did God put the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden and tell Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from that one? It was because in order for Adam and Eve to actually love God, they had to have the option of not loving God. 
unless I have the option of making a choice that says I don't love this person, then I don't really know that I really love that person. And so if you were the only two people left on the planet, you don't know that the other person really loves you because there's nobody else to choose from. But the truth is that every day your spouse comes home, you ought to give God some praise because that is an admonition or reflection or a statement that they're still in love with you. My wife does not have to come home at night. She got her own car. She got her own keys. She got her own credit card. She got her own bank account and investments. And so there's no night when she has to come home. Uh, The truth is that I give God praise every time she does come home because that lets me know she still loves me. She drove by a whole bunch of other homes. There were a whole bunch of other guys she could have stopped at, but she came to my home and that lets me know she still loves me. And so every day your spouse comes home, give God a little bit of praise and give your spouse a few brownie points saying thank you for being here and expressing the fact that you still love me. So, so understand this, that anytime there's love, there's a price to be paid. Real love is never free. Look at verse number two, Hosea 3.2. It says God sent him out to, to bring Hosea to Gomer back again. And now Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. Hmm. So he bought her. The price of a slave was 30 shekels of silver. And yet, Hosea buys Gomer for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. What this says to me is that Hosea did not pay the full price. Now, think about this. Old Gomer is now two chapters later. Gomer is now used up. She's been handed off to every man in town. Her figure is no longer the curvaceous thing that Hosea remembered. Her skin is no longer clear. Her hair is no longer kept. Her teeth are no longer white. And Hosea now has to go not only to pick her up and bring her home, but he has to buy her, used his good, hard-earned money to buy this woman off the auction block in order to bring her to his house. And the price he pays for her is not even the full price. She was so worn out, used, and abused that he now gets her for a rock-bottom clearance bargain basement price. 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. And so just remember that all of this is to illustrate the idea that that there's always a price to be paid when love is around. And so a lot of times our price is not going to be shekels of silver and barley, 
But sometimes when you decide to maintain your relationship in a time like this, you might have to pay the price of snickering and criticism. Because there's always going to be somebody around saying, I wouldn't take that if I was you. I wouldn't have that man in my house. You ought to get rid of that woman. You know what I'm talking about. Somebody always got their mouth in your stuff where it doesn't belong. Or it might be the idea that you have to pay the price of ridicule and shame because everybody put your information on blast on social media. Or it might be the fact that I've got to now trust somebody who has proven themselves to be untrustworthy or the price of being coming vulnerable to somebody who may reject me one more time or the price of taking back somebody who has broken my heart only to risk my heart being broken again and again. You see, only real love will sacrifice like that. Only real love will put itself out there that kind of way. And so the story of Gomer and Hosea is a type of the story of God's love for every single one of us. Because in the story, we are Gomer. We have been unfaithful to God. We have gone out our own way. We have made up our own rules and we have trusted and been in love with everybody else. And sin has marred and scarred every one of our lives. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But thanks be to God, it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It reminds me that God paid the price for our sinfulness when he died on Calvary's cross. I'm glad about that. And he didn't pay a bargain basement price for every single one of us. He paid the full price. He paid with his life on Calvary's cross. We have been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore we ought to glorify God in our bodies. Say yes. Next time you feel worthless, just remember that God paid everything for you. So remember this, your marriage vows were not a multiple choice exam. Huh? Whatever it is that you're going through, you signed up for it. Touch your neighbor and say, you signed up for it. He said, well, wasn't I signed up for that? When you made the marriage vow, it said better or worse. Sometimes it's worse. It's a richer or poorer. Sometimes it's poorer. It's a sickness and health. And sometimes it's sickness. So Joseph shows us how to avoid an affair. That's the best. Hosea shows us the antidote for the agony. So, but David is our third character. And David shows us the aftermath of adultery. So David started out as a poor guy, a shepherd. But God anointed his life, and over the course of time, David blew up. 
He became king over all Israel. So by the time we see David in 2 Samuel 11, David is large and in charge. He is the king of all Israel, uh, north and south kingdom. Uh, he now has plenty of money and investments, houses and land. He even has several wives. It was okay then, but don't try that now. And the scripture, this is what I've known from David, uh, that adultery causes more pain than pleasure. So verse number, chapter 11, it's springtime. The flowers are budding. The leaves are coming on the trees. The birds are singing. And it's a cool night breeze. David goes out on the roof of his house in order to catch a breeze, and he catches more than he thought he was. And so they're looking over the beauty of his, the creation. He sees a few, few roofs over the real beauty of God's creation. There's a woman who is bathing naked uh, on a few roofs down, and David happens to see her. Now, let me just say, you can't help what you see. I mean, cut a guy a break. Sometimes you're just going to see some stuff. All of us have seen stuff we weren't planning on seeing. Hmm? Somebody say amen. amen. And sometimes when you see something you weren't planning on seeing, you might look again just to check to make sure you saw what you thought you saw. The sin really comes when that becomes a long second look or a lingering third look. Then you know you're trampling in the sin territory. Well, apparently David looked too long and decided he wanted to make arrangements for this woman to be with him. And so in verse number four, 2 Samuel 11 verse four, it says David sent messengers to get her and when she came to him, he slept with her. David thought this was going to be an easy one and done. A nice one night stand, a nice way to spend a good spring night. And the truth is that often some things that happen in our lives, when we think it's just going to be something simple that nobody knows about, that is never really the case because God always knows. And so, and, and God has a way of sometimes uncovering our secrets to let other people know. And so it says in verse number five, it says the woman conceived, sent David a text with an emoji on it <laughs> and said, I am pregnant. It only takes one time to get pregnant. Got any young people in here, teenagers? It only takes one time. If you want to write something down, write that down. <laughs> it only takes one time to get HPV, HSV, HBV, HIV, LGV, CLAP, AIDS, or some other STD. It only takes one time to break your spouse's heart. 
Just one time can tear your marriage apart. Just one time can dash your dreams on a rock. One time can cancel your career. One time can give you 18 years of monthly payments. And one time can ruin the testimony that you have worked a lifetime to create. David spent one night with Bathsheba, but he sent his life screaming on a path from which he would never, ever recover. Just one time. See, whenever you walk out of God's will, it sends a rippling negative impact in our lives and the lives around us. Look at what happens in David's life. It's not just that day, but look what happens in the chapters that follow. In chapter 11, verse 14 and following, David commits premeditated murder as he has Uriah, the, white, the husband of Bathsheba, killed. In chapter 12, verse 10, Nathan tells David that the sword would never depart from his house because of this. In verse number 15, the baby that was born to Bathsheba from the affair dies. In chapter 13, verse 1 and following, uh, Amnon, David's son, decides he's going to follow in his daddy's footsteps. And Amnon rapes his sister Tamar, David's daughter. Well, in chapter 13, verse 21 and following, Absalom, David's older son, is frustrated because his daddy didn't do anything about the fact that his brother Amnon had raped his sister Tamar. And so Absalom decides to take things in his own hands and Absalom kills Amnon. Well, in chapter 14 and following, Absalom is so disturbed at his father's lack of character and lack of ability to get things done that Absalom decides that David is no longer fit to serve as king. And from chapters 14 through 18, Absalom works to take over his father's throne. And in chapter 18, Absalom is also killed. And so now David, because of a one-night stand, has to live with the carnage of all of this in his life. It's a sad place to live. But don't let me leave you hopeless today. Because the, there's one thing about David's life that utterly amazes me and reminds me that there's always hope for a renewed future. And that is that in in 1 Samuel 13, before this incident, and in Acts 13 in the New Testament, after this incident, in both of those locations, David is called a man after God's own heart. And so I know you're probably wondering, so how in the world, wow, if David did all that and all those things were happening in David's life, how in the world could he be a man after God's own heart? Well, a man after God's own heart is not a sinless man. That's not what he's talking about. If that were the case, none of us would qualify. But what he is is a man who recognizes and has a heart that is open to God Almighty. So look at what happens in the life of David and the reason why he's considered a man after God's own heart. First, his adultery is confronted in 2 Samuel 12, 7. Nathan, the prophet, comes to him, uncovers his adultery, and tells him, thou art the man. 
And so when he hears this, David doesn't try to excuse it. He doesn't try to blame it on somebody else. He doesn't try to say, well, this is kind of the times and the days that we live in and nobody cares about this anymore. David understands when he is confronted that this is almighty God speaking to him. Second, the confrontation brings conviction. And so in chapter 12, verse 13, David responds to Nathan and said, look, I have sinned against the Lord. He's recognizing that the affair might have been between him and Bathsheba, but now confronted by the word of God, David says, they hear, he says, I have sinned against God, and he becomes godly sorry in this particular incident. Sometimes people are only sorry they got caught caught. That is not this kind of sorrow. You need to have the kind of sorrow that brings repentance, the kind of sorrow that recognizes that I'm not just sorry I got caught. I'm not even just sorry that I hurt you, but I'm sorry that I grieved the heart of God and that I sinned against the Almighty. And so now he real conviction is coming in his life because there can only be transformation in a person's life when there's true conviction that happens in their lives. And when conviction brings confession and restoration. And so uh, look at Psalm 51 when you get a chance. As David pours out his heart in confession and says in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He goes on later and says, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. So here's the point that a lot of times in our lives, we go through some stuff and things happen in our lives and we believe that, uh, that really there's never any real forgiveness or atonement for our sin because there are people around us who will always try to hold our past over our head and will never allow us to be free and will always tell you, oh, you're never going to be any good because I knew what you did or I knew this about you. And there are people who always want to hold our past over you. But the wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God can forgive us. And when God forgives us, he forgives us all the way. He washes us until we are white as snow. The Bible says he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He takes our sin and casts it in the sea of forgetfulness and there remembers it no more. The Bible simply says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we would ever confess our sins, this word confess really just means agree. Because that's all you've got to do. What you've got to do is your life has been in disagreement and not in alignment with God. And what you've got to do is bring your life back into alignment with God and agreement with the Almighty. And he says, if we will bring our lives back into alignment with God, if we will finally stop trying to excuse our wrong and begin to agree with the Almighty, he says, if we will simply do that, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's what I love about our God. Others may continue to talk about you. You may still have to go through some stuff, but at least my relationship with God is put back together. My life is clean. I've got a future I can work on. And I've got a God who loves me and forgives me and sees me as if I've never done anything wrong in my life before. 
And for that, I give his name glory. I give his name honor. I give his name praise. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Father, right now, thank you. Thank you for the powerful blood that was shed by Jesus on the cross and the difference that it can make in our lives. Thank you for your forgiveness, full and free. And God, we pray, even though we may have a raggedy past, that you will give us the strength we need to walk in the newness of life that only you can provide through Calvary's cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a wonderful, mighty, awesome God we serve. And that's why I love him. And I love you, Christ Fellowship. If you'd like to take your next step as a believer, we want to hear about it. Let us know by filling out a connection card at cfmemory.org connect. We want to thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.